Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the journalist and writer James McMahon. James has enjoyed a brilliant career in the music press working at the NME, then becoming editor of Kerrang! magazine. But throughout all of his adventures travelling the world and interviewing rock stars, he was suffering from OCD. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a widely misunderstood condition that many people have to live with, so I was really interested to learn more about it from James. I really hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. James, welcome to The Reset. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, mate. I've really enjoyed reading the stuff that you've written about mental health, your own experiences. It's fantastic. It's really open and honest. It's educated me a lot. I'm particularly interested, first of all, in talking to you about OCD, because as you've written, it's an extremely misunderstood um, condition. It's a term that gets bandied about quite casually and liberally by those of us who don't actually understand what it means, which which must be frustrating. So tell me, first of all, what it, what it is. Oh, God. Um, I, I'll, let me try and kind of break it down to its constituent parts. I mean, I, I guess the easiest way of uh, s- describing it is in relation to my own experience with it. Mm. Um when I was a teenager, I just started getting intrusive thoughts. I mean, like, as I've come to learn, everyone gets intrusive thoughts, but my mind wouldn't, they wouldn't pass through. So I would have a strange and troubling thought, and that would be all I could think about. Yeah, the reason why the reason why I talk about OCD uh, so much is that the misinformation about it directly affected my experience of getting the right treatment. So... I had, when I was 19 and at university, this is like pre any kind of career, I basically just woke up one day and decided that maybe I was HIV positive. And there was no indication that I sh- that, that should be something I should be worried about or there was nothing that suggested that might be the case. But 
the fact that I couldn't prove to myself that I wasn't, like that I couldn't live with the uncertainty that I wasn't, um, just kickstarted years and years of turmoil really like anxiety and worry and i would go get tests and they they would come back negative and then i would convince myself that there'd been a mistake um at the gun clinic and they'd got my blood mixed up and just madness really and even when all of this was going on like i i didn't know that that was ocd then although it's so textbook now uh, i got to an ocd support group and so many men my age and women my age talk that their theme is is HIV and um, you know we put it down a lot to terrifying John Hurt voiced adverts in the with icebergs in the eighties you know mm. but um, yeah and then you know and then it continued to with with different themes and to varying degrees of um, extremity like from that point on but it was when I was twenty eight. Uh, so 2008 and I was at the NME and I was features editor and my career's going pretty well. And like, it had been, it had been bad at various points, uh, like in between me being at university and, and that point, but that it really reached a, uh, it really reached a, a bad place at that point. And I went to the doctors and they, uh, referred me to CADAT, um, which is a really kind of a world-renowned anxiety disorders unit at uh, the Maudsley Hospital in Camberwell. And I went and I sat down and I told them my story. And they said, well, this is obviously OCD. And because of what I believed OCD was, I said, well, it's obviously not OCD. <laughs> and I ignored the diagnosis and went off and had 10 years at that were far more difficult than they really needed to be if I'd been getting the right treatment. Um, because I just said to myself, well, I don't, you know, I don't wash my hands excessively. I'm not, like, particularly organised, mm. um, which any of my editors would attest to. <laughs> um, so the, so it was only when I was 20, when I was 37, 37, when I, 37 was like the worst year of my life when I'd left Kerrang!, and I found my way back to a doctor and my support group, and um, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of the help, almost like the help that you can get from a community of other people who have the same problems. Like yeah. I feel like there's a, you know, I'm, I'm not massive on the phrase lived experience, but I do feel like, uh, I mean, they, they were just, I mean, they saved my life, really. I mean, they... They directed me to the right therapists, um, the right techniques when I couldn't afford a therapist. Just provided me with like community and friendship of people who really got it. And uh, you know, and there's been some really difficult points since then, but nothing like there was in 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 my twenties or in my sort of mid to mid to late thirties. Um, but really, that's you know, that's the reason why you know if I can write about OCD or if I can talk about OCD, I always will do because. I do think that the climate has changed so much and I'm not sure that perhaps people would have the same experience as I had, but just because the world's caught up, but mm. because uh, if there was an OCD, you know, it's, it's just part of people's vernacular that something is OCD or it's, yeah. I'm, I'm so OCD. And, and I just believed that. So I didn't actually understand exactly what it was. I think the other thing as well is, you know, some of my um, rituals, 
which you would call them, the things that we do to alleviate anxiety or fear. Um, a lot of mine are internal. So a lot of mine are like the way I think about things. I've really had to try and retrain the way I think about things. And there's a, a phrase that's kind of entered mental health parlance with its pure O, which is kind of my kind of OCD, really, like the 80% of it. And I'm a bit sort of torn on the phrase pure O because as I've learned, OCD is OCD is OCD. Um the way that we think about the, the rituals that kind of go on in our heads is it, it is very much the same broken cognitive mechanism that people who would wash their hands or check the locks would do. But so I don't think it's totally helpful to like almost have a subcategory of it. But I sometimes wonder whether actually if it had been explained to me at the times as pure O, um, maybe I would have got the help a bit quicker. I think the, the other thing is as well though is that. I've always been quite like a high functioning, mentally ill person. So, you know, I kind of had good jobs or traveled a lot or had relationships or whatever. But, um, and I think that kind of hid really just how, how difficult things were. Yeah. I'm interested in, in the extent to which you, you hid it over the years whilst, you know, living your life seemingly in a, you know, in, in a relatively untroubled way, obviously achieving stuff that, uh, people would assume that you know you d- you didn't you weren't suffering from this sort of condition, and that is so that remains common. It was certainly more common in the years that you've been talking about as well. The stuff that everyone hid because it was there was so much more sort of shame and stigma associated with it, and and crucially, just did wouldn't have been aware that it was lots. Of, there was lots of other people. So what what was that like? Did you did you um, hide it from mates, from girlfriends? colleagues what was it how did you do that and what was that strain like yeah i mean i think that i think that i mean there were i mean during the the year you know sort of 18 months that i was constantly talking about hiv like i'm sure friends of mine thought what on earth is going on here but uh and even some kind of stuff after that but there just wasn't we just didn't have the vocabulary for it um it was more really sort of when I was when I'd got to the enemy. I mean, I was just so, you know, I'm like a kid from working class family in Yorkshire that, you know, all I ever wanted to do. I didn't really even want to be a journalist. I just wanted to write for the enemy. That was like what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I was just so grateful to be there and so kind of frightened that if anyone found this out that I would lose my job. Like, I mean, I really genuinely believed that like mental illness was something that you had to hide. Like I remember being, there was once where I had had like, it sort of broken the surface at the enemy. Like I remember being in a, a meeting and someone saying something in a meeting that I got so upset about, like not like visibly, but like it just sort of ravaged my brain and I actually went home. Like I just was like, I couldn't handle it. I just went home. And this, this guy who I worked with, he was a designer. I won't say his name because it's sort of not fair really, but he, he told me off. Like he was much more experienced than me. You know, he worked for a lot of magazines. And when I kind of, when I came next came in, like he had a go at me and 
I just sort of broke down and told him about everything. And he told me about his experience with mental illness and mm. he'd been sectioned and, and it absolutely blew my mind because this guy was like, he was like the guy you would want to be, right? Like he mm. was so talented and funny and popular and cool. And his life just seemed so sorted. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a great friend now. Um, but it was kind of that moment where it was just such a relief to kind of be like, oh, wow, you, you don't, this doesn't have to sort of define me. Mm. Um, or just sort of like the sort of bit of like a pressure valve being able to sort of talk about it. But I think as well that, I mean, even me and him, like, you know, we would talk about going for jobs and various opportunities. And we would talk, we would talk about kind of keeping things on the lowdown, you know, like how, I don't know. Like I, I just remember us talking about medical records and things, saying like, "Oh, if I go for this job, do I have to disclose this?" Or like, "Will people think bad of me if they know about this?" It was, mm. and it was really when I was kind of turned thirty and I started, I started Kerrang, where I was like, and I didn't totally, I, I was still in denial about what I had was OCD. It was kind of at that point where I was a bit like, "Well, I've achieved, I've really achieved something here that I never thought I ever would." Um, I'm gonna the only way I can kind of deal with this, um, you know, basically sort of 24 seven job really, um, you know, insane hours and sort of the profile of it and the pressure. I was, I kind of went, I started being quite open about it. So it's just like, well, I don't really know what else to do. And, but there was also a degree of like, well, I, I've done this now. I've done far more than I ever thought I would do. So almost like, I don't know, I'm a big sort of believer in like the way you eradicate shame is by mm. kind of owning it, you know? So mm. that was quite a kind of turning point for me. And I, I, I'm not sure I should have always been as open as I, as I had been, you know, but I, and that definitely was sort of the, where things changed, really. OCD is a weird one, though, because there's like... The thing that's difficult about it is... Because obviously, you know, it's so misunderstood. It's very different to all the mental illnesses, in my opinion. I think with a lot of mental illnesses, you go mad, but you don't know you're going mad. And I think the thing with OCD is you go mad, but you you're acutely, you're almost like hyper aware that how you are thinking is wrong. Right. And there's a thing. One of the biggest learnings for me when I actually like came to came to almost like got to grips with an understanding of what OCD was and how we, how it was treated was there's a concept of reassurance. So that can be physical, that can be internal. So say uh, you, you basically treat OCD by not doing what your brain is telling you to do. You know, you almost kind of like have to go cold Turkey. So, you know, if you are, if you can't stop thinking about whether you've locked the door, for example, like you have to not check the door. Like, you know, if I would say to a friend, oh, well, I'm obsessed about this, then they would go, well, of course, that's stupid. And they obviously that's a kind thing to do, but actually that's not what you need if you have OCD. You have to almost live with that uncertainty. But I've found myself in situations with friends over the years where, you know, I would ask them the same question 30 times in a row, needing that reassurance in order to have kind of peace with the thought and the thing the reason why you have to starve yourself of it is that you never get peace that way it just you have to do it yourself you can't allow someone else or or an external factor to reassure you 
Does, it, does any of this make sense? No, it does. It, I mean, a lot of it overlaps with, you know, anyone who's had experience of sort of anxiety, uh, addiction, obsessive thinking. I think, like you say, like, you know, a lot of people have intrusive thoughts. So you kind of have a, you know, speaking personally, I, I, I can, you know, I'm listening to you and thinking it's very vivid, the picture you're drawing, because... I've had a small, I think, like you said at the beginning, everyone's had a small taste of intrus- an intrusive thought you can't get rid of. Everyone knows what it's like to wake up in the night and overthink something and not get back to sleep. And so people have had a small taste of of what OCD is, you know, in a, in a full-time way. And, and it's like a lot of things. Yeah, you can't just find sticking plasters like reassurance from third parties. You need to actually tear those roots, those thoughts out at the root almost is, is that sort of uh, it uh, yeah absolutely i mean like this there was a there's a really great book about ocd called uh oh god i think it's called the boy that couldn't stop it's by a writer called david adam mm. um it's really it's really good and he writes about this like i believe it's called like white bear theory mm. um of when you know if someone says to you like don't think of a white bear like all you'll do is you'll think about a white bear but also the idea, I think this was only, I think it was only something that researchers became sure of in the 70s, but the idea that everyone has intrusive thoughts, like thoughts by their nature are intrusive. Mm. Like, and I remember talking to my mum about this and my mum saying that, uh, and also this is the other thing that is sort of complicates it a bit more is like intrusive thoughts in relation to OCD are what we call ego dystonic. So they're, they're almost like, the they're almost like the thing that is most opposed to your values, which is one of the reasons why. And it's a bit heavy, but a lot of people with OCD might obsess about paedophilia because mm, mm. who wants to be a paedophile, you know? Mm. So, uh, and it's something that repulses them so much. So, therefore, it would make sense that that would be the thing that they would obsess about most. Yeah. And I remember talking to my mum about. The, the whole kind of concept of intrusive thoughts and her saying to me, oh, it's really interesting because when I was, a, you know, when I had you, you know, when mm. you were born, I don't know, 35 years ago, whatever it was at that point, I had this thought where I thought, what would it be like if I just picked you up and I dropped you out the window and it's always weirded me out. It's always kind of, I've always thought, what was that about? Mm. And the difference with that is that I know at a certain point in my life, if I'd had that thought, I would think, well, what does that say about me? Or am I a bad person? Or what is wrong with me? So she'd had that intrusive thought, like people have, but it sort of passed through and it wasn't sticky. Whereas with me, until, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to unstick a lot of things, but generally speaking, like until a certain point of treatment, I would have been thinking, well, I'm, I'm obviously evil. I'm obviously a terrible person. So... Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It, it's, it's my my dad. My dad is undiagnosed, but I'm sure I'm sure he has OCD. And there's a lot of talk about genetic links. And you know, my my personal belief is that. And bear in mind, I'm not a you know, I'm not a doctor, but it's kind of my belief based on sort of lived experience or kind of anecdotal uh, factors. Is that I think that it is genetic but i think it takes something to almost unlock it like quite a lot of my friends with ocd they talk about traits within members of their family but also 
like traumatic things that happened to them in childhood and mm. and I had some I had some tricky stuff really kind of at a developmental age mm. um so it sort of makes sense really kind of how this kind of happened you know and um you t- you t- Mother's Day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Talk about treatment. What is the key treatment? What treatment has helped for you? Well, the gold standard is a thing called, well, it's, the gold standard is a thing called ERP, which is called exposure response prevention. Uh, which is the idea is that you are basically forced to confront your fears and your obsessions. So um, there's a guy I know who... Um, He's obsessed with germs. He, he he'll walk down the street and he'll see a bin and he'll he'll think that he is um, contaminated from having walked past his bin. And his treatment has been to go sit next to a bin for hours at a time and almost like live with the anxiety. And then I think you get to a point where, and it can take a while, but you get to a point where almost it loses its pertinence. Like mm. it loses its power, uh, like combined with CBT. So, uh, which, if you listen to a mental health podcast, you may know is an acronym for cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. But I, it took me years to get that right treatment, though. Like I say, I, I I'd started seeing a therapist as I turned 30, which was at the point where it kind of my illness stopped being, or what was wrong with me stopped being almost a dirty secret. But mm. I didn't have the right therapy really for years. Like I just talked endlessly in a room to someone while they kind of nodded and it helped to get it out. But I needed like, I needed the theory. I needed the the right kind of treatment. And it was only when I went to the support group that I found that. But which again, is something that people with OCD, people with OCD are clued up, like talk about is that, there isn't really the right signposting for the illness. Like a lot of people will make that mistake that they will go, oh, something's wrong with me, I'll go see a therapist. But if you're not seeing a therapist that really understands OCD, I think it can actually be more detrimental um, than anything. Um, your mental health today, I mean, how is it? And how is, uh, does you know, I, I've read you writing about depression uh, you know as well and are those two things interlinked yeah i mean if i'm being completely honest i i feel like i i'm sort of thinking off the top of my head i, I did write something about a very sad period in my life which is 
kicking around the internet. But if, if I'm being completely honest, I, I'm not totally sure that I subscribe to the idea that I kind of had clinical depression. Uh, like I'm, I am a very, you know, from Yorkshire, <laughs> I'm quite stoic. Mm. Um, I love life. I am a real kind of humanist, like believe in people and the world and the possibilities. And I'm very hopeful, but I think that OCD in its worst moments can wear on you so much that there are moments of real great sadness. I, I just, I'm not, I think it would be disrespectful to people who have experienced depression for me to say, Oh, I've been depressed. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I had a really bad episode a couple of months ago. Um, that was really bad. They, you know, really bad. Um, but I'm actually in quite a good place at the moment. I actually feel like I, I found my experience of working at Kerrang really difficult. I mean, I was there for six years, so right, like that's pretty, you know, pretty cool. Like uh, a good a good shift, but it was difficult for someone who had the who had the challenges I had and. Um, I mean, you know, you've worked in magazines, you kind of know what this stuff's like and it's all so all-consuming. And um, it, it's take, it's taken quite a bit of time, really, to shake my experience of what happened there. Um, but I think I'm actually in a pretty good place now. And I think I'm actually almost better for having... I'm almost having almost in a better place for having a dip a couple of months ago, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. How did you find your way out of, of that dip? I mean, you know, has, did, were there, is it is it is it, has time healed you over, over the last few months, or do, do you have techniques that you call upon? I think I've just got a bit of fight back, really. I think that uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Like when I left Kerrang, um, God, when I left Kerrang about six months later, like I got called out on Twitter. Um, by someone who said that when I was their boss, that there was another member of staff who had uh, been abusive to them and that me as their boss, I had allowed this to happen. Mm. And uh, I felt, you know, I felt a lot of guilt about that. I felt a lot of all sorts of things, all sorts of different emotions. I, I got it wrong and I was very, uh, I tried to kill myself because I just sort of couldn't handle the idea that I'd got this wrong or I'd let people down or, but also sort of like frustration that people didn't quite understand the challenges that I had and maybe why I had made a mistake. And mm. I was quite angry about bosses and that, I'd, that they hadn't supported me through it. And just a whole sort of maelstrom of different emotions and stuff. And, um, I feel a little bit like I had, I mean, I had, I had about two years just sort of sitting on the couch and looking out the window and just thinking, well, my career's over and everyone thinks I'm a terrible boss and a terrible person and all of these things that I've obsessed for years, like they're all kind of coming true. And, and I think what happened really was, I mean, a lot's happened in that time. You know, I got married and, you know, made, made a radio documentary and signed a book deal and, you know, things are going pretty well, but I actually just think the last time I kind of lost the plot was the point where I was like, okay, it's time now. Like it's, 
you, you've done your perjury, you know, you've done your, it, it's, it, you know, it's time now to give you, cut yourself some slack. And um, yeah, it felt like a turning point, to be honest. And also, and also, you know, meds <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and more therapy. And um, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I don't have a massive family. I, um, but I've been in a relationship with my wife for 10 years and I've got amazing friends who come with me all the way. And, and I just think as well, like, I don't know, like, I have to sort of give props to my mum, to be honest. Like, when I was at the NME and when it started to get really bad, like, I couldn't leave the office. Like, I would be in the office until sort of three in the morning, you know, kind of like walking down, you know, Southwark Street at like three in the morning because it would take me like... It would take me like four hours to get out of the office because I had to tap every desk three times. Wow. Or I'd get some kind of crazy thought in my head and I would need reassurance off my mum. And I didn't know why I needed the reassurance off my mum, but mm. she was the only person I felt like I could sort of be honest with. And I'd be ringing her and I'd be saying, Mum, can you reassure me about this? And she would say it back to me. She would like say what I needed to hear, but then she would like add another word on the end of the sentence. And I'd be like, no, I need you to say it exactly like I've said yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like just, yeah. cla- just classic OCD. But the thing with her was, is that, I don't know, like her dad, my granddad, like he had a history of psychiatric problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why there was a lot of shame about mental illness for me. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a lot of that with my mum of like, um, there was a lot of that with my mum where it was kind of, um, I think I got that from my mum. But also the other thing I've got from my mum is that idea of, you know, you are strong, like you can do this. Like, um, I, I don't know. I suppose I sort of just believed in myself as well. And I just didn't want it to sort of define my life. Like, mm. you know, when I was at the enemy thinking, oh, I mean, if you Paul McCartney at the end of the week or um, I've got the Foo Fighters on the phone tomorrow or, or, or mm. I'm going to get to see, I'm going to get to write the, Blur album review, whatever, like things I dreamt of doing from being sort of 13, 14 was enough for me to be like, well, I'm not going under. Like I'm crazy, but I'm not going under. And I just think actually just in recent times, I've sort of found that again, really. Yeah. So you think that like other parts of your life thriving can distract your mind somewhat from the obsessive focus on negative stuff or? I just think that, I don't know. I think a big part of the mental health discourse that has been lost actually is, you know, it's like self-belief and Mm. the worst times in my life have been really when I've allowed myself to feel sorry for myself. Um, You know, it's been things have happened in my life that have just been so, in my opinion, like unfair or cruel or harsh. Mm. And, you know, not, never for a great amount of time, but I've had moments where I've just thought, well, this is so unfair. Someone's going to sort this out. Someone's going to feel sorry for me and sort this out. And I just, that's just not how life works, you know? Like, mm. um, there's a guy down at my support group who, you know, I sit in my support group and everyone sh- shares a story and it's just horrendous stories. You know, people just living with just absolute mental torment. And we were like down the pub once and he was like, yeah, I've never felt sorry for myself though. You know, I've got to, I've got a mate with MS and he would talk about his mate with MS and I'd be like, that sounds really terrible, you know? So like the shitty things that happen to people and, you know, you just can't feel sorry for yourself because it's a cruel world. And that's really harsh to say, but I feel like that's actually been lost a little bit from 
this conversation, this sort of touchy feely conversation about mental health is that you know no one's coming to help you. Like the NHS can't even see you like within eight months. So you're going to have to dig in somehow. You're going to have to find something to pull you forward. Is it? I think the thing is, is that people often, you know. With my own sort of challenges in mental health and with addiction and stuff, I, I sort of struggled to acknowledge to myself that I had any problems that were worth taking the time to think about or focus on because the other elements of my life were going well. So we kind of have that sort of, it's very easy to go, oh, he's got MS or someone else is dying of cancer or someone else is starving. Yeah, and so, yeah. And therefore you think, fucking hell, I'm not going to open up about any of this stuff. Because who am I to feel bad for myself? But I suppose it's like a difference, isn't there? You've got to like uh, uh, acknowledge the difference, all of us, between feeling sorry for yourself and just recognising that you feel shit and, you know, that some people can feel shit even if things are going well. Like like you say, you know, superficially, someone might have looked at you and thought, he's got a great job, he's in a great relationship, everything in his life's great. And I think there was a time where... You know, you're a bloke with that sort of life and you just, if you're having dark thoughts or dark moments, you think, I fucking cannot show anyone other than, and I'm very similar, other than my own mother, maybe my wife, that I feel this way because it is so shameful for a bloke with a life like mine to even have a moment's sadness. So it's all right to feel sad, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to, if people are getting you down, I suppose it's harnessing the power of saying, fuck them, isn't it? Absolutely. And I just think as well, though, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I never really like that phrase of sort of, oh, you know, some people have got it worse because what, yeah. kind of, what kind of monster would you be to actually be like happy that some people have got it worse, right? <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think more what I'm trying to say is that there's a thing, you know, a friend of mine with OCD, I keep talking about friends with OCD, that's been such a big change in my life in the last sort of five years, is meeting other people who, uh, meeting other people who you don't have to explain this stuff to because it's almost like mm. there's this sort of innate understanding between us. But this this friend of mine who is definitely further down the journey of their treatment than me talked to me about this idea of like unconditional acceptance of almost just almost not not lying to yourself. You know, not not you, you have to be honest about situations or about things that you feel. Because that's the only way that like peace comes. If you're, you know, we have this kind of great ability to kind of almost cognitive dissonance, like to almost kind of lie to ourselves, you know, like whether we know it or not. Like, and I think that there's something about that, which is what I'm trying to say, is this idea of, you know, I used to, like I say, some of this stuff from being a kid, like it just lingered for years and with like so much fear and um and i kind of had to get to a point where i was like okay well that happened you're like you thinking about it isn't gonna like go back 30 years and make it happen and make it happen differently like it happened Mm. so yeah i don't know i mean it's just it's interesting really because i think we're we're doing like a magazine like Quran. there was a lot of like i read this were very young even with the enemy really so because of that there was a lot of insight into like mental health communities, like because that was something I was always interested in. We always tried to do campaigns like that with the mag, and um, I, I guess there's always that thing, isn't it, where you sort of you, you want to be the sort of change you needed, you know, you mm. want to be the 
you want to do you want to say the things that you think you would have needed at a younger age and which links back to you know what I try to do with bits I write but it's it's quite it's hard for me sometimes to see this sort of like almost like a TikTok generation of like talking about mental illness like it's a great thing in so many ways but I, I just think that one of the things that's lost is this is a bit more talk about strength and stoicness i just think that that mm. stuff's really important um because life's really good like you don't deserve to not be okay i hate that phrase like it's okay to not be okay like i understand what you're saying i think that you know you're like a successful magazine guy and a lot of what you're talking about addiction and drink and i mean there's a lot of people that make that stuff seem really normal in that industry, you know? Mm. Mm. And I think that being honest with yourself is such a massive part of this. So that's not what I'm saying. Like that's a a step to recovery in you being honest with yourself. But I think that there, there's a lot of woolly mental health chat, which is like, well, it's okay to not be okay. And I'm like, I mm. don't know. I, I just, I think that's a road to nowhere. It's like, you should be angry that you're not okay. You should be angry that you're not getting the right help. You should be, because that, that'll be the thing that gets you to the following day. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm delighted that things are better for you today. Thanks, man. Thanks. And um, I think you're doing a, a huge amount of good by you know, talking so eloquently and honestly about, you know, your experiences and just raising the awareness of, of OCD. So we stop all, and we've all been guilty of chucking it around in the way that you, you mentioned at the beginning. Oh, I'm a bit OCD about that. You know um, what? It's weird, right? Like I'm, I'm a bit, uh, I suppose I'm a bit sort of like heterodox in my politics and I'm sort of quite a bit, a bit of a opponent of, cancel culture and like outrage culture and things like that. It's like, it's a thing that kind of matters to me. And there was all that hoo-ha about Lizzo, um, mm. about her using like an ableist slur in her song, which I just think, I just think was a simple mistake. I think it was mm. a, a phrase that has different connotations in the States to, you know, what it does to people who grew up in British playgrounds. But mm. like when she apologised about it, which I think she was good to apologise about it and rectify it, there was part of me going, ah, oh, cancel culture, it's out of control again. And then I was thinking, how many times, James, have you pulled up someone about their incorrect use of OCD? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, a bit of a hypocrite on my part. But I, ju- I just think, I don't know, I just think stuff's important, like, because, you know, my life is uh, evidence of the effect that that kind of misinformation can have. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's great what you're doing, mate, and I really appreciate your time. It's really nice chatting to you. We've never met before, but I'm really glad that we have now. Um, So, James, thanks ever so much for your time, and good luck with everything in the future, mate. Thanks, Sam. Cheers, dude. There you go. That was James McMahon. What a top fella. If you want to read or listen to more of his output, then the best place to start is his Substack newsletter at spooksubstack.com. That's spook with three O's. 
James is a great writer, not just on mental health stuff, but music, life and all sorts of things. And remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substat.com too for early access to this pod, plus exclusive newsletters, and coming soon, an extra podcast just for subscribers. Thanks for listening, as always, gang. Until next week, be lucky, and don't let the dickheads get you down. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 